Hey everybody, welcome back. Another Friday, another episode of a podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. We're all culture makers, we want to be cultural reformers here, and we want to help you think about culture in a way that honors God, in a way that takes every thought captive to King Jesus. I'm Ryan Aris, and this is episode 5 of season 2 of the podcast for cultural reformation. This season is all about cultural pressure points, where the ground is shifting under our feet, and what the timeless and authoritative Word of God calls normal. And today, I'm pleased to welcome my guest, Dr. Jerry Bergman. Dr. Bergman is a research associate at the Institute for Creation Research. He's earned three master's degrees at the Medical College of Ohio, where he did cancer research in the Department of Experimental Pathology. And for over 40 years, he's taught at the undergraduate and graduate levels at Bowling Green State University, University of Toledo, and the Medical College of Ohio. Most recently, he joined ICR in 2018 as a research associate, and he was with us here a couple of weeks ago as a special guest lecturer for the Leadership Roundtable and the Escarpment Lecture at the Ezra Institute Center for Reformational Culture. I sat down with Jerry to talk about the history of science, Charles Darwin, eugenics, and the endgame of atheism. Dr. Jerry Bergman, welcome to the show, and welcome to Canada. It's Thank great, you. Great to have you with us. Good to be here. <laughs> Even though we don't have a Hobby Lobby? Well, hopefully you'll have one in the future. Well, we'll see what we can do. So we're, uh, we're going to be talking about social Darwinism, um, the, uh, the theory and doctrine of evolution, um, the person of Darwin, and uh, I just want to uh, kick us off by reading a passage uh, from Scripture here, and we're going to read... From Romans 1, uh, starting at verse, uh, verse 19. And we read, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. A lot of insight there. It would take probably a few pages to discuss it, but pretty clearly says that we, the creation proves that God exists. The heavens declare the glory of God, which is how it's often expressed. And we're without excuse because we see the glory of God in the creation all around us all the time. The birds, the trees, even Darwin did a whole book on the worms. And we realize that worms are critically important for life on the earth. If we didn't have worms, we wouldn't have life, or at least life would be very different because the worms are necessary to produce soil, which is required for us to grow plants. Right, right. So uh, can you just say, some, say more about what you mean by the, uh, the created, the natural universe proves the existence of God? Well, we have the planets, the stars, the sun, the earth, plus the natural world. We see all around us, and the natural world would include, of course, the life of plants, of animals, and uh, the environment is such where it's conducive to life. And we don't realize that until we start to look at the environment. For example, the 
percent of oxygen and uh, nitrogen and carbon dioxide is such that it's perfect for life on the Earth. Mm-hmm. If it changed much, we'd have a problem. Right. I've heard similar similar um, demonstrations of that. Just that the odds of of the universe and the world being suited to uh, to life, to human life and plant life and all the world as we know it, but the odds of that coming about by chance are just infinitesimally small. Right. Good example is global warming, which is talked about a lot today. And they're looking at, well, since 1880 to a few years ago, the increase in temperature was about 0.7 degrees. So we're talking about minor change from the past over 100 years. And if we look at what the future is, they're looking at a one or two degree change in the future. And that is seen as almost catastrophic in some ways. Now, other estimates say it might be more than that, three degrees, but yet even if it's five degrees, we don't see that as tremendously different. But yet we recognize that could have a huge effect on the environment. Now, of course, that's debated exactly what the increase will be. Some scientists say two degrees, some say five degrees. So we don't know that area, and we don't know the cause of the increase. Cause of the increase could be several things. Of course, the most likely culprit, according to scientists, is, of course, human production of huge levels of CO2, carbon dioxide, which traps the heat, which serves as a greenhouse effect. And therefore, that's the problem they look at. But such minor changes, even if true, could create major changes in the Earth. So when we look at the other parameters, we can see that 2, 3, 4, 5% difference could make a huge difference in life. And we know that would be true with some of the other parameters. So is, is global warming, is man-made global warming um, a real threat that we're facing in our day and age? Well, some people feel it is, but there's a lot of mixed feelings on global warming. Among the scientists, it's claimed to be scientific consensus, but then again, scientific consensus in the past has been wrong. Like on eugenics, for example, it's one good example, and also relative to scientific consensus on uh, other areas as well. Yeah, I want to. I wanted to ask you about uh, about eugenics, um, but come at it uh, sort of from a bit of uh, in through the side door. You've been involved in science, in science education. In uh, you've, many of your degrees are in different scientific and medical fields, but lately you've been writing a lot about history and uh, the history of science, but the history of, of uh, scientific figures and movements. One of the reasons that that stands out to me, just that fact, is that a lot of scientists are are le- less less interested in their history, partly because they're very embarrassed about eugenics and the fact that it was heavily supported by scientists. In fact, there were very few scientists that we know of that opposed the eugenics movement. It was basically the scientific consensus, and there were a few, but not very many. In fact, we can probably a dozen at most that we've been able to locate for the past hundred years that were post-eugenics until, of course, the change occurred primarily after World War II when we realized the Holocaust. And that, of course, drew us to the attention that, indeed, where this is going is a problem. Right, yeah. And you you had a book out recently on the Darwinian worldview of of Hitler and his sort of his upper echelon of Nazi officers. Um, Can you just uh, talk a little bit about about that book and the... uh, the reasons for how, like how, and talk about how that book came about. 
what, what I was looking at was basically the influence of Darwinism in not only Hitler, but most of his disciples. I originally titled the book Hitler and His Twelve Disciples. The publisher didn't like that because it was too close to the Twelve Disciples of, of Christ. Sure. But I thought it was an interesting comparison, and indeed they were his twelve disciples. And every one of those had a strong Darwinian background and were heavily influenced by Darwin in developing their Nazi ideas, especially related to elimination of inferior races. It's pretty obvious from their writings and from their own acknowledgement that indeed they were heavily influenced by Charles Darwin's writings, not directly. I'm not aware of many who read his writings directly, but they're influenced by the German interpreters of Darwin, like Ernst Haeckel and others. And many Darwinists were indeed heavily influenced by other factors, especially, of course, the German ideology. So what, what kind of a man was Darwin himself? Uh, he was, a, in many ways, a contradiction. He had many good qualities and many bad qualities. His bad qualities weren't, I don't know if he really directed, wanted to produce the outcome of what happened as a result of his ideas, but they certainly did so. His ideas in many ways changed the world. In fact, some people have suggested instead of using before Christ and after Christ, the former designation in the Western world, that we should use before Darwin and after Darwin to cut history in half because Darwin was so critical in changing our view of the world. The main change he brought about, and this I think was tactful but indirect, and in some ways I think he knew where he was going with his ideas. But basically he, quote, quoting his own words, it's like committing murder. And indeed he did murder Christianity at least among the higher echelons of society. And as a result of his ideas, we find that before Darwin, virtually all scientists were Christian creationists in the West, that is. In the East, they were Muslim creationists. After Darwin, they, among the eminent scientists, that is, the vast majority were not creationists or even Christians, but atheists or at least agnostics and very opposed to the Christian worldview as well as the Christian set of moral values set up in the Bible. And right, and the Dar- Darwin himself, he wasn't just, uh, he didn't just sort of investigate and develop some theories and leave it at that. Like he was, uh, he was more or less an apologist for his, uh, his evolutionary ideas. From his own writings, we know that very early in his career, his goal was to basically destroy Christianity and more importantly to, of course, to murder God. And he set out to do that, but very tactfully. He realized that it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be a slow process. But he worked his whole life after at least the age 30 trying to achieve this specific goal, and that is to destroy God. And he did that by destroying the reason people believe in God, namely, as Romans 1.20 talks about, namely, the reason people believe in God is because the evidence all around them of the creation. And he wanted to come up with another creator, which, of course, was evolution. So evolution became, in his words, a deity. Evolution replaced, although he used the term natural selection, for evolution, because he didn't use the word evolution. That's a a word that was used later on. But he used the term natural selection, which by that he meant evolution. And therefore his deity, evolution, which he used the word natural selection, of course, his goal was to murder God by coming up with another explanation for the existence of creation. And indeed, he did stress that natural selection explains everything around us, pretty much, at least the natural world, 
and that was his goal. Doesn't sound like a very scientific goal. It sounds like he kind of went about it uh, back to front, scientifically speaking. Like he had his his hypothesis, and then he worked to worked to get the uh, get the evidence in place afterwards. Right. He did the opposite way you're supposed to. You're supposed to, in science, come up with an idea and then prove or disprove the idea. So this is my idea. I'm going to see if it works. If it doesn't work, I'll go on to other ideas. If it does work, then I will refine it and accept it. So he basically had the idea first, and then he went about trying to find the evidence to prove his idea, which was, indeed, he could come up with another creator to explain the source of the creation without God. Why, why did he have this goal? Why, was he, why did he set out to, uh, to murder God or to, uh, to expunge a creator from, from our thinking? A lot of debate, but the most, one of the more common explanations is he lost his daughter, Annie, when she was 10. And that was his favorite child by far. Annie was a very delightful child. And Darwin was really attached. You know, he had 10 children, so he had no, although three of them did not survive to be adults, but he had no, uh, he had a favorite among children. And it was Annie. And he lost Annie at the age of 10. And that really upset him. We know that. And why did he hate God? Was it because of that? That's one theory is that that's why. Other theories exist, of course, but we know he did want to murder God, but we're not sure exactly why. Maybe the reasons are amorphous. Maybe there are several reasons, but Annie, of course, is often given as one explanation as to why he got so angry. So you've uh, you mentioned briefly already the uh, the influence of uh, of Darwin and Darwinian thinking, evolutionary thinking on groups like Hitler and the uh, like the catastrophic results that that had. You've also traced the the connections between Darwin and the Nazis pretty compellingly. Oh yeah, there's no question that Darwinian ideas through German scientists Ernst Haeckel among others and hist- German historians had an enormous influence. The central idea of Nazism was indeed the influence of Darwin, and of course that means survival of the fittest, and that means that some uh, humans are more fit, are more superior, ubermenschen, they would say in German. So he believed that some were more were uh, superior humans, and others were less superior or inferior humans, in his words, and therefore that was a driving force behind the Nazi movement. You know, if you remove just that idea alone, Probably they would have done quite well. They started doing quite well. If you remove that influence alone, it's speculated that Hitler would have won World War II and the world would have been very different, or at least what we see today where Germany dominates Europe. Probably they would have dominated Europe much earlier, and maybe some speculate that we wouldn't have much different today than if indeed Hitler would have prevailed and indeed the world would have been very different earlier but we would have ended up with the same result today, which Germany dominates Europe. Yeah, this this influence of Darwin on the Nazis, like you didn't have to sift through declassified documents. This is not a secret. Like people are aware that this that this connection exists and is uh, is strong and sort of many multifaceted. Oh, it's any book on Nazism will talk about it. Mm-hmm. Now, some focus on the battles, some focus on the politics. Yeah. But invariably, they have at least a paragraph which talks about the importance of Darwinism on the Nazi movement. Uh, Some books go into far greater detail. There are a number of books that only cover this area, or at least aspects of this area. My book, I basically look through the standard literature, the well-recognized literature published by major university presses, 
and I basically try to capsize the influence of Darwinism in one book, not only on Hitler, but also on his primarily uh, people like Mengele, Josef Mengele, etc. So I looked at his 12 leading individuals, leading Nazis, and I documented the influence of Darwinism on all of them quite directly. Mengele is most obvious. He did his doctoral thesis on, he did an MD, of course, and a PhD. He did his PhD on evolution, and he openly was trying to apply evolution to produce a superior race. That's the idea of the Mengele uh, twins that he, the research that he did on the twins. And so therefore, it's pretty straightforward. Some, it's less straightforward, but it's there. And if you do a lot of reading, you'll find it's there. And so that's what I documented in my book on Hitler and his... Uh, right, so we're, uh, people uh, were still rightly horrified at uh, the, uh, the Nazi eugenics experiments, the Holocaust, and everything that, uh, that came out of that. But if this is so well known, why is, why is Darwinism such a prominent uh, worldview today still? Well, they, the evolutionists say, well, he distorted Hitler, etc., distorted Darwinism. And it really didn't. That's the way they try to get out of the influence of Darwinism on the Nazi movement. And he really, it's pretty straightforward. In fact, you take paragraphs from Darwin himself wrote, and Hitler, straightforward, his disciples as well, straightforward, followed those ideas in trying to produce a superior race. Uh, a lot of it was not so much to produce a superior race, but to reduce the degeneration of the German superior race. So they wanted to maintain its, uh, its elegance, and they wanted to do that by reducing the likelihood of reproduction by inferior races, namely, of course, in Germany, the Jews, which were only about 0.7% of the German population. So they're very small. But there's a lot of focus on them because they were the largest minority. The blacks were, what, 0.001%? There might have been 100, 200 blacks in all of Germany. And therefore, there was not much focus on them because they were such a small movement. But Jews, even though they were a very small percent of the German population, still dominated so many areas in industry, in music, in business, in banking, etc. So for their small numbers, they did quite well in the German economy. And therefore, Hitler could focus on these. And of course, there was some resentment as well. I mean, Darwin wasn't the only reason, but sure. there was resentment. Why were the Jews generally so successful? And they were successful because, of course, the work ethic and so on, the values of the religion that we see, they were successful not only in Nazi Germany, but also in America and pretty much wherever else they were. But as a whole, they were not throughout the world successful. In Poland, for example, massive poverty existed among the Jews. So we can't say the Jews, period, were always successful, but in Germany they were, in America they were, but in Poland they were, some were successful, but many were not. They were still... Uh, enormous poverty among the Jews and the Germans yeah. folk. Yeah, but you, you haven't confined your research just to Nazi Germany. I mean, that's a huge question in and of, in and of itself, but you've also published on the, uh, like the American eugenics movement, for example. Like oh, Ger yeah. Germany is not the only... Oh, yeah. Not the only ones guilty of sort of pushing Darwinian thinking to some of its natural conclusions. And we accepted eugenics as well and the influence of Darwinism, except in America the influence of Darwinism was more direct because it was written in English, we could read English, and therefore we in America, I should say America, the Americas, Canada and America, it was widely accepted and as a result the influence was more direct. It wasn't through another scientist like in Germany. So it was more direct and not only more direct, but we 
and instituted the eugenic policies sooner than Germany did and to a greater degree at first. The difference was Germany carried them to the last step, the final solution, which was the Holocaust. We, our Holocaust was simply in sterilizing, uh, numbers debated, but about 100,000 people were sterilized as a result of applying, attempting to apply the Darwinian ideas to our society. What accounts for, for that, uh, that difference? Uh, ironically, the Germans, the first goal was to simply get the Jews out of the country. Yeah. And so they ask other countries if you will take the Jews. And of course, about half the Jews did leave, were able to leave. But they wanted the, to export basically all of the Jews out of Germany. And many countries wouldn't take them. America would not. In fact, a shipload came to America, a boatload, about, I think, almost 1,000 Jews. And we refused to allow the ship to dock. And also the South America in Cuba, I believe, refused to allow them to dock. And so they went back to Germany and over half died in the Holocaust. So we likewise had some of the same ideas and that affected how we responded to Germany's request to send the Jews. And so basically Hitler said, well, nobody else wants them. We'll have to kill them. And that was, quote, the final solution, which wasn't until about 1941 and 42 that was implemented. And so therefore they had, what, since Hitler was appointed chancellor, was it what, 36, I think, or 33, was it? Uh, I can't remember. 33, 34, yeah, but so, so there was... He was elected 34, he took office, if I remember so correctly. So there was about seven years where they had a chance to leave, and again, about half from Germany did. But in Poland, that was a different story. They didn't have the money or the means to leave. And, so, and of course, they didn't expect that would be a problem until Germany conquered Poland. And that was where really the largest number of Jews by far were killed, was in Poland and Hungary, had huge Jewish populations, where Germany, again, they were small and and also they had intermarried quite a bit with the Germans, and so therefore a fair number survived without a problem because if they were married, now the Nazis didn't approve of that, but after the Nazis took over, they basically tried to prevent future marriages. But there were so many marriages that occurred that they had a problem trying to determine how we determine who was Jewish and who was not. And the question was, did you have to have two grandparents that were Jewish or only one? And they were looking at ethnicity, they weren't looking at uh, religion. So therefore, they couldn't always tell by what church you attended. Although they did, if you went to the Jewish synagogue, they kind of assumed you were Jewish. Right, right, or at least that you were, you were friendly. Friendly, right. So uh, what's, um, in, in what form, I guess, is, uh, do, we see, do we see this Darwinian thinking um, expressing itself I guess, most, uh, most directly or most uh, significantly today? Uh, well, primarily in the antagonism towards Christianity and Judaism and the Muslim faith, because Darwinium, if it's strictly applied, of course, we are talking about atheism. Right. And therefore, a major influence was on the atheist community. And as I was an atheist at one time, I'm pretty aware of this. And I noted when I was involved in the atheist movement that we spent more time talking about Darwinism than we did about the virtues of atheism. It seemed that way. We, did, we talked about Darwinism a lot because we recognized the doorway to atheism was Darwinism. And so we realized that we have to present the Darwinian worldview effectively in the schools and elsewhere in order to lead them on to the eventual goal of atheism. And therefore, that's one reason why atheism grew so much. Now, the atheists, of course, looked at other things, 
but Darwinism was a major reason that we used in order to help people accept the atheist worldview. So that was important. And we knew it was important. And of course, you can't be an atheist without being a Darwinist. I mean, you can't be an atheist and be a believer in God. That's a contradiction in, yeah. in yeah. terms. So you have to accept the atheist worldview and or you have to accept the evolutionary worldview to be an atheist. Right. Although ironically, there's some that didn't. And I would ask, well, who do you think, where do you think, who created the world? Well, I don't know, but I know evolution didn't do it. So you're not an evolutionist? No, no, I'm not an evolutionist, but you're an atheist. Oh, yes, I'm an atheist. Yeah, isn't that, uh, wasn't that Thomas Nagel's position now? That he's I kind think... of, um, I, and I haven't kept up with him, but uh, he published a book where he said, oh, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not sure where all of this came from, but Darwinian evolution can't be the answer. Doesn't explain it, yeah. It said that from the atheist worldview, Darwinian worldview is the best ex- explanation. But that doesn't mean it's it's the best only explanation. It's the best explanation now. And so they some do admit that. That maybe what other theories they look at? Well, they look at the idea that we life came from some other planet. Yeah. Uh, yeah exobiogenesis. Mm-hmm. So that's one uh, explanation they have. Or uh, panspermia, they sometimes call it directed panspermia. Okay. Sometimes called the Superman hypothesis hypothesis. So that's another view. But of course that only moves the problem somewhere else. How did they get on Mars or whatever planet they hypothesized they came from? Yeah, yeah. How did they get yeah, there? It sort of shifts the whole question one step backwards. Right. So it doesn't really answer it. So they recognize that. But on the other hand, Crick, one of the important uh, discoverers, of course, of the structure of DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, he, direct, he accepted the view that indeed life could never have evolved on the Earth in conditions here. Therefore, it must have come from somewhere else. And so he was one of the strong supporters. There were others, many prominent scientists as well, but Crick is one of the most famous who accepted that worldview. Right. Of directed panspermia. I'm not sure if it was directed, but could have been accidental panspermia. Right. And this, uh, you mentioned that uh, before you were converted, you did, uh, did a lot of, I guess, atheist or Darwinian evolutionary evangelism, if I can put it that way. Uh, yeah, I wrote a lot, and Madeline Merrill Hare liked my writings. In fact, everything I wrote, she published, so she must have liked it because oh. everything I wrote wasn't all that good. I mean, I wrote some good stuff, but everything I wrote, she published, so she must have liked my work. And she did state she liked my work. She thought that I did very good work, and I was a prize for the atheist movement, she mentioned. Wow, that's, I mean, looking back, that's a dubious honor, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> but um, there's uh, there's value there, and it... it it sh- it shows, I guess, it, uh, the um, maybe, maybe you can just talk about this, uh, like the atheist movement. Maybe you can uh, just say some say something about how how atheism is is spread. Well, the goal of atheism is to make the whole world atheist, and they really feel that the world would be better off if we would be atheists. If we were atheists, mainly because that removes constraints that religion, Christianity in particular, has upon our moral life. So we could then determine what's morally for us separately from Christian constraints. Uh, heavily sexual morality. Promiscuity is encouraged among the atheist people, or at least not discouraged, I should stress. And therefore, they could remove constraints of sexual behavior, and therefore, we could have sex with who we wanted to. They stress you don't force them. But we basically, I want to have sex with somebody, then I can if they want to, and that's no problem. Whereas Christianity puts brakes on that, we call that fornication or adultery, and so therefore that's condemned among Christians, 
and that therefore is not condemned among the atheist movement. So they stressed basically free love, and many atheists did push free love, and so that's one reason among others. And I, to some degree, it's you have to have some enemy, some bad guy, and the for the evils of the world, they selected the bad guy as Christianity, and of course they picked up the usual culprits like uh, the Inquisition, and which they tend to understand, misunderstand, sorry, quite uh, strongly, and the uh, Crusades and a few other events, the execution of witches and so on. So they do pick on these areas, but it was apparent to me as a history minor in college that they, their conclusions relative to these events were, put it mildly, wrong. Okay. They totally misunderstood the goal, and they condemned the Spanish Inquisition most strongly and the Spanish Inquisition was taken by the Spanish government away from the Pope. And the Spanish Inquisition was a problem when it was run by the government. When it was run by the church, it was not a problem. And they, they had no choice, though, when they took it away. And the, the Spanish government was concerned that the Inquisition was far too lenient. And I don't recall the data, but they brought, I don't know, let's say 100,000 people before the Inquisition. And like 99.99% were in, ended up with some Hail Marys, etc. Right. So the punishment was very lenient, and the Spanish government did not like that. And so therefore, they took over the Inquisition. And as far as I know, that's the only country that did take it over. And the other countries, the Inquisition was quite lenient, shall we say. But of course, the church's goal was to bring people back to Christ. It was not to punish people. And punishment was by far a last resort. And therefore, they basically trying to help people along the right path. Right, or restorative word, kind of... Uh... Restorative, yeah. And the word inquisition, of course, brings out what they actually did, and that was to inquire. Right. And so we, our judicial system in the West, Canada, and the United States is based on the inquisition because we do an inquiry. We try to find out, indeed, what the facts are and then go according to the facts. The position before that, I could mention, is trial by ordeal. And trial by ordeal, as you know, is they dug somebody in a, a pool for three minutes or four minutes, and if they came up alive, they were innocent. If they came up dead, well, they were guilty. Right. And these were the ma a major way that they tried people, and of course, we know that's foolish. And therefore, the goal was to get away from that and try to find out, indeed, if they were guilty. Because the problem is, all too often, you had accusers who accused their enemies of crimes, they were executed, etc., and it turns out they were not guilty, and the accuser was simply trying to deal with the enemy by bringing the state in to execute them so they didn't have to do it. Right. And right. so therefore, it was a, a goal was to bring about justice, and it did that in most areas, but of course, Spain, they did not. But even in Spain, the number executed was fairly small uh, compared to other methods. And it probably was an improvement in Spain compared to the trial by, uh, by ordeal. What was it that, uh, that brought about your conversion to Christianity? I realized after a while, especially from my study of history, etc., that so many of the ideas the atheists pushed were simply wrong. They claimed to be very scholarly, they claimed to stress science, etc., but in fact, so many of the ideas were not based on fact or science. They were based on what they wanted to be true. For example, when I brought out this, as I mentioned to you, relative to the Inquisition, their response is, well, the church was still involved and they were still evil, the evil guys, and well, it couldn't be true because everybody knows the Inquisition was horrible and they punished people and they put people on the rack and so on, and therefore the church behaved very horribly, and therefore they still found reasons to accept their worldview. 
And so it simply was not very scholarly. It was one of the main things that wasn't based on facts. Fact was one of the main things that bothered me. And one of their goals was, of course, to convert the world by the power of the state. And the goal was, first, we get public Christian emblems out of the public square, around the cities. Then we look at the schools. We get the public the emblems out of the schools. Then we get, basically, the churches out. So the goal was, progressively, we will eventually eliminate the churches. And I, even though I was agreed with their atheist worldview, I had a very hard time with their draconian ways of dealing with what they saw as a problem. And therefore, it bothered me that they were not very... In some, although I had a good relations with all the atheists, I have no complaints, even Madeline Muriel O'Hara, I had a very good relationship with her. But it bothered me, their end goals, and what some of the people were trying to do. Huh. Yeah, and that, uh, that sort of sent you on an investigation of the other side, of, of the Christian side of, the, uh, of this debate, this controversy? Right, and then I looked at the evolution question, and the first area I looked at was a vestigial organ claim, where they claim there are about 100 organs in our body and humans that have no function mm-hmm. or are problematic, like the tonsils and the adenoids. Yeah. And then I looked in the medical literature and found all of these have a function, and all of these are indeed at least useful, if not in the case of the thyroid and the thymus, critically important in normal development. And so therefore they turned out to be wrong, and I felt if they're wrong in one area, they might be wrong in other areas. And each area I explored, and I'm still doing the same thing, by the way, each area I explored in the uh, evolutionary claim set of claims, I realized were simply not backed up by fact. Based on the scientific, peer-reviewed scientific literature, their claims were simply not true. But you have to dig into it and try to understand, indeed, are their claims correct or incorrect. And I concluded all their claims that I've looked at, and I have a few more I'm looking at, but all the claims I looked at, indeed, were incorrect and did not support the evolutionary Darwinian worldview. But rather, they supported the other side, which, of course, is the creation worldview. If I can flip back to the... uh the atheist movement for a second. How was the how was the spread of atheism through the state accomplished or gone about? Like, was it uh, was it through sort of lobbying for? You mentioned the removal of public or of Christian emblems from the public square. Was there like a school campaign or was um, how uh, how did the how did the atheist message get uh, get distributed and who was targeted for uh, that? Tactfully, they tried to stress freedom of religion. And that means freedom of no religion, and therefore we want freedom from religion, and therefore they try not to present themselves as atheists. And so many were atheists, but their public front was not an atheist. They were just presented the public front as as, as human humanism, basically. And that means we're not trying to push atheism on you, but we just want freedom for religion for all people. Yeah, you've got uh, like free thinking and rational and all these other euphemisms that are uh, that are thrown around that uh, right. that I guess presuppose an atheist worldview without saying it in so many words. Especially the term rationalist was used a lot. That basically means racialism. It means uh, evolutionism. Okay. And uh, that's that was a term they commonly used. But in my conclusion is they were not rational. They're very irrational, and so that word would be inappropriate from my study. But on the other hand, they use that word because it sounds, see, you're just being rational. Mm-hmm. And of course, their arguments they used, they felt were rational, but on the other hand, they were convoluted and also ignored much of history and much of fact.
So it's uh, it's probably fair to say that the like the Darwinian evolutionary worldview has has entered the mainstream of of think of Western thinking. It has very much so. And when I was on the plane uh, coming to Toronto, I set up a conversation with the lady next to me, and uh, she asked me where I was going, and I mentioned to her I was coming here, and she asked me about my beliefs, and so therefore I answered her questions. And right away, when you say the word creationist or intelligent design supporter, she perked up and uh, I explained to her what it was all about. And she said, oh, I had a very different idea. I thought these people who supported the conservative Christianity were lunatics, and right. were extreme, and wanted to flat earthers, wanted to put people in jail. And, and in her own view, she was, I don't believe in any one religion, she said. I believe they all have validity, but I believe there's something behind it all. I believe there's a God, but I don't know whether that's Allah or, or Jesus or uh, Hare Krishna or what it, the Buddha, etc. I don't know which one it is, but they all have good points. So that's where her view was. But she had a very distorted view of the creation, intelligent design worldview, and she made that very clear. And she was surprised when I talked to her. And she, when I gave her my name and so on, she looked me up on Amazon in the plane. And so I think that gave me some credibility. I think she felt somewhat, who's this guy I'm sitting next to who claims to have been written, written all these books? Who is this guy? So she asked me what they were, and she looked on Amazon, and she said, oh, there they are. <laughs> and so she was convinced that, indeed, I was at least that aspect of what I was saying was valid. So we had a good conversation after. Uh, and we were on the plane for, what, an hour and 15 minutes, bouncing up and down in the weather on the way to Toronto. So we had a good conversation, and she... Uh, uh, I think helped her see indeed the other side. So the common people have a very distorted view of both creationism and intelligent design. Mm -hmm. And that is one thing I think we need to work on, helping them realize that we are very rational. We are looking at evidence. Yeah. And a number of books I've written basically say the doorway to Christianity is the evidence. If you look at the evidence, it's going to lead you to Christianity as well as the uh, what I call the creation worldview that indeed the evolutionary worldview is not supported by the evidence and the creation worldview is supported by the evidence. But, uh, but doesn't the creation worldview, or doesn't any worldview, go before the evidence? Like, uh, the worldview is kind of like the way that, like what you see, what you look with. So if, if you're coming at, uh, at the same evidence with, a, um, with an evolutionary worldview, how are you, how are you going to see a... Uh, the evidence for a creator? Probably both the creation and the evolution worldview. You have the worldview first, yeah. and then you look at the evidence. Uh, but many of us who became creationists, including me, mm -hmm. and there are many, I have a book full of them, mm -hmm. several books actually full of them, look at the evidence first. Then the evidence convinced them to accept the creation worldview because they thought that was, they concluded, that was the most commensurate with the evidence and therefore accepted that worldview. So that's true probably of the average creationists, I would say, probably were reared a creationist and they accept that worldview because that's what they were taught. Right. And, and my guess is, too, that they're not able to defend their worldview as effectively mm -hmm. as one like me who came from the other side right. and were convinced by the evidence and spent much of my life researching the evidence. And so, therefore, you have a stronger uh, case. You can make a stronger case if you came from the evolutionary worldview and moved into the creation worldview. But I know a large number of people who started off with the evolutionary worldview and accepted the creation worldview. Right, yeah, so I, I guess it's, uh, it's maybe, maybe the question is uh, how well 
how well does the worldview align with what you see? Like how, how well does your worldview fit reality? Oh, it fits reality very, very close because when you study the natural world, for example, you can see the evidence for design everywhere. I just did an article on the moon, which I point out that the moon is critical for life to be on the earth. We have to have a moon about the size it is, about the distance away it is, and our moon is very unusual compared to all other planets. Its size alone compared to the size of the earth is huge. Now, Jupiter has a few huge moons as well, but Jupiter itself is much, much larger than the earth. What, 88,640 miles? I think it's the diameter of Jupiter. So therefore, it's much larger than the earth. The earth would fit inside of Jupiter quite comfortably. And therefore, uh, it does have a few moons larger than ours, but on the other hand, compared to our size, the moon is quite large and, and necessary for stability, for the uh, oblique angle of the earth, 23 and a half degrees. It's not an angle of the ecliptic straight. And so therefore, it's, there are so many reasons why the moon is critically important for the earth. Something else it does, which people aren't aware of, it is kind of a magnet for meteorites, etc., comets and therefore attracts a lot of objects from outer space that would normally hit the Earth, and therefore many do not hit the Earth. Now, Jupiter and other planets serve that function as well. But if you look at the Moon, you see the side facing away from the Earth is heavily pockmarked. pockmarked. Right. It is as a result of that function. And so that's only one of many functions i found that shows the Moon is necessary for life as we know it to exist on the Earth. And you see that in astronomy all over the place. Get, getting back to the question of the, the matter of uh, Darwin and evolutionary theory, what, what should Christians be doing to bring a Christian worldview into the public square? Uh, study the issue. Uh, invite speakers who know about the issue. Mainly be aware of the problems and invite people. And it's hard. I've spent 50 years of my life studying this, and I read about a book a week, so I'm pretty aware of all the arguments. But you can't expect people with you know, family, with jobs, etc. to spend that much time. So at least read a few books a year on this topic and at least invite your church or other venues, people who can speak about this. Uh, Creation Ministers International is in Canada. Uh, the Institute for Creation Research, they, we can bring speakers in. That's where I'm associated with. The uh, Ken Ham's group in the United States, they have a branch in Canada. They could bring speakers in easily. So involve these people in your church or other activities. And so therefore, become more aware of it. Even if you did a book a year reading would be fine, would help you become aware of the concerns that we uh, have expressed quite clearly in the material that we produce. Suppose uh, suppose we were to, I would ask you for the three best books on uh, on the issue. Where would you point me to? Where would you point readers to? Someone who is sympathetic, but uh, but not expert. That's like saying, what is the, the, the best movie you've ever seen in your life? Sure. Well, there are 60 I can name. Yeah, sure. So there are so many, there are so many excellent ones. I think get on the websites and see uh, Institute for Creation Research. We produce a lot of really good stuff, readable stuff, lots of pictures and lots of illustrations and design for lay readers. There are a lot of very scholarly books out there, which Wendell Bird has an excellent book with two volumes. It's about 3,000 pages, but I'm not sure many people would get into that because it is very scholarly and very well documented. But I think the Institute for Creation Research and 
Uh, Answers in Genesis as well. They have a lot of books that are uh, meant for lay people. But since I work for ICR, of course, I'll mention ICR, Institute for Creation Research. Just type in Institute for Creation Research in your browser. And uh, they have uh, quite a number of books that are very well written for lay people with lots of illustrations that are very inexpensive that would help you introduce you to this area. And they have books on astronomy, they have books on dinosaurs, they have books on uh, fossil record, they have quite a variety of books which are very useful to at least introduce one to this subject. If you have a science background, this is easier, but if you don't have science degrees or science background, you may have a lot to learn to be able to understand what our arguments are. But that's fine. I, you know, I think science is a, a great field to learn about and encourage everyone to become more science literate. So sure. go to it. Great. Jerry Bergman, thanks uh, very much for your time here. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. It's good to be here. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast for Cultural Reformation. Please take a moment to like, subscribe, share, rate the podcast on your favorite listening platform. For more Ezra Institute resources, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca.